David Erickson. I'm one of the elders here at Christ Community Church. It's my pleasure to bring you the Word of God this morning. This morning, we're continuing our series in the Book of the Twelve, and we are studying Obadiah this morning. Uh, You'll find it on page 724 of your pew Bible. Its claim to fame is that it's the shortest book in the Old Testament. And uh, our, our senior pastor is away today. This is the, the genius of the three-by-three three plan that uh, Scott shared. Uh, if you're visiting today, uh, you need to come back so you see what our church… If you've been visiting two weeks, you need to come back. Our senior pastor will, will be back bring us the Word of God uh, next week. He's in, um, well, along with uh, uh, Pastor Tim and Pastor Jordan, he's in Utah along with a big crew of people uh, bringing the gospel to Mormons there. And I, when they come back, we get to hear all about it. It should be a great report. All right, we are in the book of Obadiah. The book begins, The Vision of Obadiah. So, a few things about it. Uh, We actually have no idea who Obadiah is. Uh, If you do a Google search or, you know, get out your concordance, there's lots of uh, references to uh, somebody called Obadiah in the Old Testament, but it was a pretty popular name, so we have no reason to believe any of those are the prophet. Uh, Another thing is that we don't know when the book was written. So there is a wide time range. It could be as early as 800 B.C. or as late as 300 B.C., which is a 500-year window, which means we don't really know. Uh, But the message of the book of Obadiah is clear, and it's laid out for us right away. Uh, Let's just read. Let's start by reading verse 1. It says, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us battle against her, let us rise against her for battle. So the book of Obadiah is a message of judgment on the nation of Edom. And Edom was one of Israel's neighbors uh, just directly to the south. Then other nations around are going to rise up and they're going to overthrow Edom. But it's more than just judgment against uh, Edom for their sin and idolatry. And as as we're going to see, It's also God settling a very old score because Edom and Israel were brothers. They were brother nations, and Edom had betrayed his brother. And unlike most of the other prophets, the book of Obadiah has no uh, harsh word or no condemnation for the people of God. There's no word of warning for us here um, uh, directly. Uh, Some commentators, the the sin of Edom is is his pride And some commentators, they're discussing the the, uh, pride of Edom. It's easy to say, well, we should not be proud just like Edom. And there's many places in the Bible that tell us to uh, avoid pride, to humble ourselves. Um, And and God's Word calls us to this, but this is not one of them. Uh, In the book of Obadiah, it's not a moral message to not be like Edom, but it's a message of God delivering His people from the oppression of the proud. So this is the direction we're going today, just a a three-point outline. We're going to start off by doing a little backstory of Jacob and Esau and seeing how these two nations are brothers. And then we'll look at the first half of Obadiah, which is the offense of Edom. And then we'll look at the second half of Obadiah, which is the promise of the kingdom of the Lord. Before we get into it, though, let me ask the Lord uh, for His guidance in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we're about to read and study your word and we come to it with fear and trembling because we've, we've read enough of it to know that you, when you reveal yourself, it is more than we can handle. Uh, it is, uh, it's not something we can believe or obey in our own strength. We need your spirit to work in us. We pray you do that this morning in Christ's name. 
Amen. All right, let's start off with a pull up the map from last week. You can see there uh, Edom is the kingdom directly to the south, a little bit to the east. It's the kingdom there in yellow. Uh, it's where modern-day uh, Israel, southern Israel is, as well as Jordan. So not only were Israel and Edom neighbors, they were brothers. The, word, the name Edom is a Hebrew word for the uh, word red, and it was actually a second name given to Esau. And Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. So uh, between these two brothers, between Jacob and Esau, there was a conflict that played out over centuries of time, eventually two nations, Israel and Edom. You can trace a quick history of the conflict. So when uh, Israel was called out of Egypt, God brought them into the wilderness, gave them the law, and made them a nation, and then directed them to go to the promised land. To get to the promised land, they had to go through the kingdom of Edom. So they said, hey, can we, can we pass through? And, and uh, the, the king of Edom said, no, you need to go around. Uh, he also, also asked to go through Moab and Ammon, two other countries to the east. Again, they were refused passage and had to go around. But curiously, in the book of Deuteronomy, when uh, Moses is writing down the law, Moses writes uh, concerning the, the uh, tabernacle, he says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way. That's a re reference to on the way uh, out of Egypt. But then Moses goes on to write, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. So the nation, the, the nation of Israel and also Judah were brothers with Edom, and it meant something to God. But then for hundreds of years, there's a conflict. There's, there's many records of conflict. Uh, King Saul fought wars against Edom. Uh, King David eventually subjugated them, but then they revolted, and there was an ongoing conflict. So to understand the origin of the conflict, where did this come from? We need to see some of the backstory, and it's right there in Genesis. So keep your finger in Obadiah, and go to Genesis. I don't need to give you the page number. It's the first book in the Bible. Just flip there. Make your way to Genesis chapter 25. So this story, this is the story of Isaac and his two sons, Jacob and Esau, and it's, it happened in roughly 1900 B.C. So however you date the book of Obadiah, this is at least a thousand years uh, prior to this. This is ancient history. So Genesis chapter 25, starting at verse 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. 
Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name is called Edom. You can see in the footnote there, Edom sounds like the Hebrew word for red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. So the the book of Genesis tells the story of God's promise to his people. It starts off with the promise to, in chapter 12, the promise to Abraham to bless him, to make him a a great nation, to bless the nations around him. The promise was meant for Abraham and for his offspring. So the promise was going to be passed down. I was going to be passed, at first it was passed to his son Isaac and not to his other son, Ishmael. Then the promise from Isaac was going to pass on to his son, to Jacob, but it was not going to pass on to Esau. The two brothers were twins. So in our mind, twins are born at the same time. But in the ancient world, the principle of primogeniture that the oldest will get the inheritance was so strong that even if you were twins, it mattered who came out first. Uh, So even if there was like a minute difference. So Esau came out first, he was the older, so therefore the right of inheritance was his. But God upends all this. Before they're born, God tells Rebekah that that her two sons are going to become two nations and the older will serve the younger. So Esau is going to become the nation of Edom, Jacob's going to become the nation of Israel, and God's blessings, his covenant promise, are going to follow Jacob. If it was according to human tradition, if it was according to human effort, or uh, uh, if it was up to Isaac, the the younger would have served the older, but it's not up to any of that, it's up to God. So he upends human tradition and says, the older will serve the younger. And then at the, as the boys get older, at the end of that story in chapter 25, we see that Esau despises his birthright, and he does this willingly, right? He, he willingly walks away from what God had already decreed would not be his. And then in passages after this, we see that God works in Jacob's heart to soften him, to bring him to faith, to trust the covenant promises. But before any of those actions had taken place by Esau or by Jacob, God's plan was already in place. And the Apostle Paul picks up this this and explains the significance for for us in Romans chapter 9. Let's read it. Romans 9, verse 10. It says, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue... Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So the Bible tells us that God chose to be gracious to Jacob. Jacob didn't earn it. He wasn't better than Esau. 
God didn't look into the future and see that Jacob's going to make good choices, therefore I'm going to choose him. He simply chose him by his own uh, free choice. God chose to put his favor on Jacob and continue the covenant in order that his purpose of election might continue. And then concerning Esau, Paul here is quoting the prophet Malachi. We're going to get to Malachi in our series, the last of the minor prophets. It simply says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. We see in Genesis 25 that Esau has no interest in the promises of God. He despises his birthright, but he does it of his own free choice. No one's compelling him to do this. And God sees the state of his heart, and God simply chooses to not intervene. So God chooses to be gracious to Jacob. He didn't deserve it. And he chooses to not be gracious to Esau, to simply leave him where he was. So what do we do with this? I mean, this, these are hard words, right? Uh, it's like, can we even believe it? Like, what do we do with it? Paul knows these are hard words. So in the very next verse, he goes on to, to say, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So our, our problem with God, if we have any problem, is not that he is just. God is the most just, he's the most fair being in the universe. Everything he does is right. He's far more just than we are. Our problem with God is that he's merciful and that he's free to be merciful in any way he chooses. And he doesn't owe us any explanation. He doesn't have to dole out mercy in a way that we approve. And maybe you've seen this in your own life. You've seen someone who's lost in sin, who his heart is hard, and yet God is able to reach in through circumstances, through his word, through someone else, and he can simply save them. And he, he can break their heart and bring them to a knowledge of their sin and, and in a way that they did not do. And yet, it's also, there's other people we see lost in sin and God simply doesn't do it and we don't know why. I think when we see this, the only response is humble gratitude. And for those of us who know the grace of God, we look at the cross of Christ and we see that's my salvation. We know, we know there is nothing we did to deserve it. God chose to be merciful to us, and so we're grateful. And so when we see someone who's lost in sin, to whom God has not chosen to show mercy, and, and we know that someday God will demand justice, what we can never do is we'll ne we can never gloat. Because we, when we see them, we know that would be me, apart from the grace of God. So I think it's important to take this attitude of humble gratitude with us as we now go into the book of Obadiah. So now flip back there and let's go into the book. All right, so we've read verse 1. We'll pick it up at verse 2. <clears throat> God says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So Edom's sin is pride. It's haughtiness. 
You know, to be haughty means to be high, to have a highness of soul. And from your high position, you look down on everybody else and you say, you know, you're losers. And then when you look at yourself, you say, I'm untouchable, right? Who can bring me down? And it says, it says here that pride is deceitful. So it, it's deceitful. It causes you to believe lies about yourself. And we see, it's really easy to, rec- to see pride, isn't it? When you, it's easy to see pride in someone else. And it's very ugly. It's, it's very difficult, maybe even impossible, to see pride in yourself. There's a sense in which pride can be good. So I, you can take pride in your work. I'm very proud of my kids. Proud to be an American. But there's another sense that pride is the ultimate sin. Pride is the sin of Satan who thought he could ascend to heaven and make himself like the Most High. Pride is the sin of Adam and Eve who questioned God's word and thought they too could be like God. There's also a foolishness, a a ridiculousness to pride that causes a person to go way beyond themselves. In verse 4, Obadiah says that Edom soars aloft like an eagle. So an eagle is a symbol of, it's a symbol we use uh, for our our, our own country. It's a symbol of strength, independence, of freedom. But then Obadiah goes on to say, your nest is set among the stars, which is an obvious exaggeration. It's beyond where any nest would be. And so pride, it's a picture of pride that goes beyond reality and reaches to the stars. Also, Obadiah describes Edom as those who live in the clefts of the rock. I want to show a couple pictures to illustrate this. So this is from Petra, which is in that same region where Edom was. Has anyone been to Petra? Okay, we have some... Tra- okay, it's, uh, it's like the high point of... It's like the leading tourist spot of Jordan. And um, these structures were built by, the, uh, um, Nabate- the, by an Arab tribe pro- uh, a few hundred years after the Edomites had left this region. But still, it shows you what was possible, like the architecture that was, that was going on at this time. And you can imagine a, a, a civilization up in, the, up in this high fortified place with this glorious architecture. And then from that position, they say, look, we're, we're in no threat. Who can bring us down from here? But God says, from there, I will bring you down. Let's continue in verse 5. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? So God is going to bring the nation of Edom down, and he's going to do it in a way that's going to leave nothing behind. There's going to be no remnant. So from the rest of Scripture, we know that God is long-suffering. He's slow to anger. And in fact, sometimes God waits to bring judgment longer than we would like. But when he does come, he comes with overwhelming power. The book of Hebrews tells us that God is a consuming fire. A consuming fire just eats up everything in its path and nothing remains. Verse 6, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. So Esau and his descendants, they had pillaged, they had deceived, they had trapped those around around them, but God is going to bring it all back on on their head so that they're going to reap what they've sown. And it appears here that Edom has enjoyed what we call the fellowship of thieves. 
He has his allies. He has his friends that join with him. Um, they eat their bread with him. They're at peace. But God, they're all going to turn against him, and Edom's going to be left alone. Verse 8, will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon. Uh, Timon is the, was the, one of the sons of Edom, and it became one of, the, one of the sons of Esau. It became one of the regions of Edom. And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Timon, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So Edom has no understanding and doesn't this, isn't this what sin does to us? It makes us stupid. Uh, if, the, if the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, then pride is the beginning of foolishness. Proverbs 18.2 says, A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. So Edom thinks he has many wise men, lots of understanding, but in reality, he just likes to hear himself talk, right? And God's going to... Sh- Take all this understanding and just show it for what it is. It's just foolish pride. It's just self-deception. So we've seen the sin of Edom. We've seen God's threat against them. But now in verse 8, we're going to, now in verse 10, we're going to see uh, the actual charge, the specific thing that Edom has done. It says in verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. So here's Edom's specific sin that Obadiah is bringing the charge on, and that is that Edom betrayed his brother. When Judah fell into, uh, uh, was uh, attacked by his enemies, and being plundered, instead of Edom coming to the rescue, or even being sympathetic, Edom joined in and just piled on. He stood aloof, he cheered them on. Now, at this point, commentators have to do a little guesswork about what was the specific circumstance. I want to give a, um, a, a couple of references, you can go look it up later, um, just to give you an idea of where, what this could be. So, last week we studied Amos, we studied all, we, bree- we breezed over all the nations that surrounded Israel and Judah. One of them was Edom. And you'll see in chapter 1 of Amos that the charge against Edom by Amos was that he had betrayed his brother. So it could, but that's dated 750 BC. So this could have happened at, at that time. But in Psalm 137, we, we also find the similar charge against Edom. When Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came and they conquered Judah, they destroyed Jerusalem, carried all the people off to exile. In Psalm 137, it says, Edom was cheering them on. So I think it's most likely the latter. I think this happened at the time of the exile, 586 BC. Uh, Verse 20 in Obadiah, which we're going to get to, gives a little evidence for that. It talks about the exiles. But whatever you pin the date, uh, late date or early date, the message is the same and it's clear. Edom had betrayed his brother at his hour of need, and instead of coming to his aid or his defense, Edom stood aloof and cheered it on. Let's read a little bit more, verse 12, uh, starting at verse 12. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth 
in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. So by implication, this is what Edom had done or was doing. He gloated, he boasted, he joined in the looting, he handed over the survivors. So God's people are oppressed, right? They're hard-pressed by the enemies of God's people. And God had given them over to the Babylonians as a punishment, as a discipline for their sin. But Edom was joining in, and God says, I'm now going to come to the rescue of my people, to their defense. So now, at this point, how do we apply this to our lives today? How do we take this historical situation of what was going on in Judah, what was going on with Edom, God's judgments against Edom, how do we apply it? I think it's one of the blessings of uh, preparing a lesson or teaching a Sunday school class is that you get to stew in God's Word for a while and think about it. And over the past few weeks, I've had one persistent thought on this. Of all the things that harass and assault the people of God today, the pornography industry has got to be one of the worst. There's a whole group of people, there's companies, there's websites, they're pumping out all this sexually perverse and destructive uh, stuff, these images and videos, and they're destroying our men, right? Especially our young men. And we in the church, when we succumb to that temptation, we're totally to blame, right? It's completely our fault. We have no one to blame but ourselves. We're the ones who have reject the beauty of God's holiness and go after the ugliness of sin and license and perversion. But I think this, the message of Obadiah is that this is not the whole story. God also sees those who are luring us into this, who are cheering for our destruction, and he's going to do something about it. So I think of my two boys growing up in the world. When they were young, they had no idea that this would come at them unless I told them, people in the church told them. And, or think about my, the, the boys that will someday you know, likely marry my uh, two daughters. There's someone out there who's planning and strategizing how to take sexually explicit entertainment, if you can call it that, and just make a little more money off of it. And they don't care anything about my boys or my future sons-in-law. They don't care about their souls. They don't care about the impact on their families, their future families, their walk with the Lord. They just, they'll just chew them up and spit them out. But God sees all this, and He cares. He loves my two sons even more than I do. And from Scripture we know, He will come to their defense. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And we know that God can use any means He wants to to repay. Right? When you think about the, uh, when the Israelites came to Canaan, there was child sacrifice going on there. And God had watched over it for hundreds of years, and He said, this, was, this will stop now, and He will bring down whole nations to put an end to sin. And we're not the ones who are doing it, are we? Vengeance is not ours. We don't repay. It's God's business. We don't have to justify it. We don't have to give some approval of it. We simply watch and see God come to the defense of His people and come to the defense of His holy name. So, so what do we do with this? What's the action? I think the action is really simple. We need to stand out of the way. Right? If, we, if you see the nation of Edom and God's judgment coming on them, you want to be as far away as possible. 
And if you know Scripture, you know what our God is like. You know it's going to be bad. You want to get away from there. So let's press on with Obadiah now in the second half of the book. Let's, uh, we pick it up again at verse 15. He writes, For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. Obadiah announces the coming of the day of the Lord, the day when God breaks into human history and he makes things right. And the basic principle of God's righteousness is as you have done, so it will be done to you. And it applies not just to Edom, but to all the nations. The nations have celebrated the oppression of God's people, and now God's going to force them to drink the cup of his wrath, and it'll be as though they had never been. All the accomplishments of man will be brought to nothing when the day of the Lord comes. Verse 17, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. So the same is not true of God's people. We survive the day of the Lord, and what we have done will remain. Not only do we escape, but we retain our possessions. So in some way, what we do here lasts to eternity, which is the opposite of what happens with the nations. Uh, it'll be as though they had never been. It, and not only that, God uses uh, Judah and Israel to judge the other nations. Verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. There shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So we don't know how this is going to work, uh, but this is God's word, and it's a, it is a hard word, uh, directed against those that don't, do not know the Lord. We don't know how this idea of future judgment will work. We do know that G both Jesus and Paul say that someday we will sit on thrones and judge the nations. But this is not a mantle that we pick up for ourselves, right? This is the Lord's work, and whenever, whenever it happens, it'll be done at God's direction. For the Lord has spoken is how Obadiah ends this. So our expectation is that someday there's going to be judgment. There's going to be judgment for all nations and judgment for us as well. But by God's grace, ju the judgment for the household of God has already begun, as Peter says. And the place where we most clearly see this is if we look at the cross of Christ. At the cross, we see God's holy and just punishment of sin. Every sin we've ever committed requires an awful price, but Christ willingly pays the price for those who repent and turn to him in faith. But if we're blinded by our pride, if we're sitting on the heights saying, who can take me down? Then the cross has no meaning. It has just no value. Those who are deceived by their pride can't understand it. But if by God's mercy, we've been given the ability to see our pride and lostness, then the cross is the great way of escape we hide ourselves in the true cleft of the rock, which is Jesus. And from that safety, we watch the great and dreadful day of the Lord pass by. And we watch it in wonder. All right, verse 19, to close the book here. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, 
And those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So there's a lot of names here, a lot of place names. These all would have been familiar to the original audience. I'll just trace a few of them here. So the Negev is the desert region in the south of Israel. And it says here that those who are there will possess Mount Esau. They're going to go from their current location and press to the east. The Shephelah is a hill, uh, the hill country in the southwest corner. They're going to press to the west, and they're going to occupy uh, 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 Philistia. It talks about Benjamin, which is a tribe in the center of the country. They're going to press to the east and take Gilead. And then it talks about exiles returning back to the land and going as far as Zarephath. That would be up in the very far north part of the country. And then finally, there's a reference to Sepharad, which uh, uh, commentators are not sure where this is. It could be as far as Asia Minor, Mesopotamia. Again, they're going to return and possess the land. So if we add all this up, it's a vision of outward expansion, recapturing the full extent of the promised land. So it's a vision of return from exile, coming back from far away to repossess was, which was that which was once yours, and then pressing out and taking the full extent of it. You were dispossessed, but in that day you will possess, and no one can take away the, this land from you because God has given it. You're, you were exiled, but in that day you'll return. And as Amos said, you'll be planted and never uprooted. You were oppressed by the ungodly, but in that day you'll rule over them. Various saviors or deliverers will be raised up, and this is possible only because God himself will rule. The kingdom will be ours, because the kingdom is the Lord's and we belong to him. So Obadiah speaks in, uh, with terms and locations that the people then would have recognized immediately. Imagine you were in exile. You were someone from Judah. You had just been carried away from exile, uh, into exile into Babylon. And then you hear this word of Obadiah. You would have recognized this and seen God bringing you back. For us, it's a little harder to see. But we also have the benefit of seeing this in the larger context of Scripture. And the Scripture as a whole speaks of God's restoration of all things. God promised to make Abraham a great nation, but he also promised to make him the father of many nations. God promised to establish Israel in the land, but also that the knowledge of the Lord would fill the entire earth and that all nations would come and worship him. And in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us that the Gentiles are made fellow citizens with the Jews built into one household. So this this is a pro prophetic vision from Obadiah about the return to the land, take, recapturing the full extent of the land. But from there, it extends out until it encompasses all of creation, people from every nation. And I think because of that, the ultimate fulfillment of that is seen in the promise of the new heavens and the new earth. So that's where we're going to end today. And if, uh, in Revelation chapter 21, uh, if you could turn there, we're going to end in that. In that the sec it's the second to last chapter of the Bible, so you don't need a page number, just go all the way to the end and flip back one page probably. Revelation 21. We'll just start at the beginning of the chapter and read a few verses. 
The Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So I think this is a very similar vision as Obadiah, of a a restoration of all things, brought back to an Eden-like paradise, enjoying the full extent of the land, which is now the new heavens and the new earth. It's a dwelling place for God and His people. And everything we suffered, all the tears, all the mourning, much of it because of our struggle against sin. It's all going to be wiped away, not because it's going to be disregarded, but because we're going to see the reward and the ultimate purpose of God's work in our life. And we're going to live forever with God and we'll even rule and reign with Him. As Obadiah closes his book, the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are, we're grateful for this vision of, the vision of Obadiah, a vision of who you are, that you are holy, you are just, you're merciful, your merciful is free, it's just unconstrained. Uh, your justice is, your holiness and justice is terrible, it's more than we can handle, and yet we have been spared and sheltered in the cross of Christ, all of our sins wiped away, and now we can see what you're doing in the world and how you are redeeming us and making a people for your own glory. And we just, we're grateful for your grace that we have in Christ. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.